All right. Excellent job. Many, many people throughout history and even in our day have asked and are still asking, who is the real Jesus? You know, we've been going through a series here at Crosswinds entitled Checking Out Jesus. It's been a really good series. If you've missed any of them, then I want to encourage you to go back and uh, check some of them out. A couple weeks ago, we examined the central core message of Jesus, that when God says repent, it is always an invitation to something better. Last week, Doug did a great job looking at the call of Jesus to his disciples, leave your nets and leave your boats and follow me, and all that that little phrase, leave your nets, means. And then Doug invited us to join the disciples in their adventure. And so by way of introduction today, I want to read something from Luke's account of the life of Jesus. And it's going to lead us to a question that uh, it's going to set up this question that we're going to wrestle with and grapple with for the rest of our time together today. Now, this passage is a little lengthier than usual. It's 15 verses, but I know you can hang with me. It's found in Luke chapter 7. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him, and so Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. And when a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought, uh, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet... He would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. How awesome is that phrase? Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, I love this, get this picture in your mind. He's looking at the woman while he's speaking to the Pharisee. He says, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet. But she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. Still looking at her, speaking to the Pharisee, he says, I tell you, her sins, and they are many, her sins have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love, but a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, there are wonderful riches that we can mine from this passage, no matter how we look at it, no matter which angle we 
come at it from. Here's one uh, artist's rendering of that scene. We could examine the, we, we could like zoom in on Jesus here, right? And examine his incredible compassion and his love and how no one, not even a notorious sinner in this city like this woman, no one is beyond his notice and no one exists outside of the reach of God's amazing grace. We could also view it through the eyes of this woman, this immoral woman who kind of crashes this little party, right? She's not invited. She just hears about it, and she just kind of comes walking through the door and walks right up to Jesus. And in this beautiful act of worship and humility, she humbles herself there and, and bows low. She it is, uh, it does this great act of love, this self-sacrifice, this alabaster jar of rare perfume that we're told is maybe worth about a year's wages. And, and her act of faith, she honors Jesus while everybody else in the room just kind of sits there and watches. Both of those things would be fine to talk about. They're both in the story and they are worth noticing. They're worth discussing. But what I'd like to kind of key in on today is this little table with these men at it, with Simon the Pharisee, and take a look at uh, what they're doing here. They've been told that this man, Jesus, is a prophet. And so they ask him to come over. Maybe they want to learn something. Maybe, my guess is, though, that it's probably not that. What's more in line with the way that the Pharisees typically approach Jesus and interact with him is they want to bring him over and they, they want to talk to him in secret, you know, because they don't want to have to go back and explain to all their Pharisee friends, you, you know, that uh, why they've been seen with Jesus. And so probably want to trap him, probably want to, you know, say some things cleverly worded to try to ensnare him in some kind of a contradiction, so they could go back and say, yeah, this guy's nothing, right? But they've been told about this man, and they probably have some expectations when Jesus comes and sits down at their table to eat with them. But what they see is a woman coming in the back door. I wonder if any of them even thought like, oh, this is good. Let's see what he does with this. The woman comes forward. And this is so easy for us to miss just how absolutely radical this was in that culture for Jesus to allow this, but allows her to touch him, allows her to, to uh, you know, cry all over him, wipe those tears with her hair, allows her to pour this perfume on him. And this immoral woman, we don't really know how she earned her money, but we can maybe guess, lets her kiss him. But that's not all. He forgives her sins, and he says, your faith has saved you. And I can imagine how this must have just enraged the Pharisees as this was beginning to happen. This is kind of early on in Jesus's ministry, and he's done some miracles, and, and he's really becoming a thorn in the side of these Pharisees and these religious leaders, right? Because forgiving sins is something that only God can do. This isn't something that some, this upstart you know, guy can show up and, and just start pronouncing people you know, forgiven of their sins. This stuff that Jesus was saying and doing, it was really beginning to rattle the cages of 
these religious leaders, and they really didn't know how to deal with them. I can imagine some backroom conversations like, what are we going to do about this guy? This guy is going to be causing some problems for us. There were a few of them, not many, but there were a few who believed in him. And then there were others who, like these guys and like Nicodemus, who they wanted to have a secret meeting. You know, hey, can you meet me at night? Can, can you just come over to my house and, you know, and, and we'll just meet there? That way I won't have to explain being seen with you. Others said that the only explanation for these things that Jesus had been saying and doing, these claims he was making, is that he had a demon. He's demon-possessed. That's the only thing that can account for it. And still others wanted to kill Jesus for blasphemy. And eventually they do arrest him and kill him. But you see, Jesus did not fit the expectations that many Jews had concerning the coming deliverer, the Messiah, the promised one. And so when these Pharisees observed Jesus allowing this sinful woman to touch him, you know, dangle her hair on him, kiss his feet, and then Jesus, like, like if that's not enough, Jesus pronouncing her sins forgiven, declaring that her faith has saved her and that she can go in peace. It leads them to ask this question, who is this man? Now, this question could be asked in different ways, right? could be asked out of awe and respect and astonishment, like, this man speaks with such authority. He must be from God. Who is this man? Could be said like that, right? I can't prove this from the text, but since they're Pharisees, and we know a lot about the Pharisees from the Gospels, I tend more to think that it's more of a condescending thing. Like Jesus starts talking about, yeah, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. You know, these guys are just like, get a load of this guy, right? Forgiven sins now, is he? You know, who is this guy? right? Maybe more like that. Either way, I don't want this to be understated this morning because this is so crucial. Their question is the greatest, deepest, most revealing, most defining question that a person could ever ask. And in the final analysis, it is only this question that will really matter. Who is this man, Jesus? It's the great question of our time or of any time and is a question that we must answer for ourselves individually. Who is Jesus? Not who does the church say that Jesus is? Like, oh, well, yeah, I, I'm at Crosswinds Church today, so I'll pick up one of their statement of faith things on the way out at the welcome table, and I'll just take that with me, and whatever they say, I'll just go with that. No, no. No, not who does the church say he is, not who did my parents tell me that he was, not who do my friends believe that Jesus is, but what does the Bible say? What is the biblical record? What do the researchers say who had first-hand sources at their disposal? Who did the eyewitnesses who wrote the Gospels say that Jesus was not just right then, you know, when they were with him and kind of caught up in the moment and everything was, you, you know, uh, like kind of real and, and fresh and, and right there and, and living in the moment and all that kind of stuff. Not that, but what about after when Jesus was gone and what, what did they do then? How deeply did that stick with them? You remember what 
Doug has said over and over again in this series, the only reason to follow Jesus is Jesus. And the only reason not to follow Jesus should be Jesus. And so we must each answer Simon the Pharisee's question for ourselves individually. Who is this man? Who is this man? So what I want to do with the rest of our time together today is to just examine who Jesus claimed to be because he made some pretty bold statements about himself. Who did he claim to be? Who did his followers say that he was? Again, not just then, but even after. And what that means for us today. So who did Jesus claim to be? Seven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes bold claims about himself saying or beginning those claims with the words i am he makes these claims about himself and if you've been reading through john's gospel and today's the last day of that i believe but if you've been reading through uh, the gospel of john then perhaps you've noticed this it's like a trail of claims about who jesus is that spans about 10 chapters of john's gospel and this is so cool because i think that these things are so precious to john these statements are like treasures to him. I can just imagine him as an eyewitness being in the crowd and, and just being so focused on what Jesus is saying about himself and, and just saying like, oh, I can't wait until later. I got to write this stuff down and I got to interview some people about what he's saying. And so he really wants his readers to see the glorious character of Jesus. And so he includes these I am statements that he's heard along the way. And each of these I am statements is like a window into the identity of Jesus. It communicates, uh, excuse me, it, it reveals something wonderful about the character and the person of Jesus. Each one of them, as Jesus says them over time and in front of different crowds, each one of these statements it continues to answer the question of Simon the Pharisee, who is this man. So again, there are seven of these I am statements. Uh, we don't have time to zoom in on all of them today, so I've just picked four. We're going to take a look at four of them. One of the things Jesus claimed about himself, I am the bread of life. John records, Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty now, I don't think it's any accident or coincidence that as Jesus is saying this about himself, this is right on the heels of the, the miracle that he did, the feeding of the 5,000. Yet a multitude of people gathering around to listen to Jesus talk because his popularity was exploding by this time. And so they're all there and the disciples come to him, you know, the disciples, they're kind of thinking about different things and... and uh, they're like, uh, yeah, I think we may have miscalculated our crowd size, and I think we forgot something. What are all these people going to eat, Jesus? And so he says, all right, bring me uh, some, some loaves of bread and some, some fishes is all they had. And so they bring them to Jesus, and this is one of his early miracles. He multiplies these things, and so everyone in the crowd is able to eat. He multiplied those, and, so, and then a huge crowd is fed. But this was just physical food. Right? They eat it, it's provided for them, and they eat it, and they're filled temporarily. But what's going to happen in a few hours? They're going to start feeling hungry again, and they're going to need more bread. 
and more fish because this was just physical food. But I think what Jesus is saying here is that he, he's saying, I am the bread from heaven because there is a bread that comes from God that is able to satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. It is spiritual nourishment. It is spiritual food. And Jesus is saying, I am that bread. Physical food and, and, and water, they meet our physical needs, but we have spiritual needs as well. And Jesus was claiming to be this spiritual bread that would satisfy our heart's longings as nothing else in the world ever could. He says, I am the bread from heaven, the bread of life. He also said, I am the light of the world. John records, Jesus spoke to the people once more, and he said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, then you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. You ever intentionally or unintentionally found yourself in a position where you are just kind of feeling around your way in the dark? You're, you're in some pitch black dark, and you're trying to find your way around, and you don't have a light. You ever been in that situation? Maybe you're driving down the, some back road late at night, a moonless night, pitch black, and uh, you're just like, Let's, I'm just going to turn the headlights off for a while. We're going we're gonna to see how that goes, right? You ever done anything like that? I know my kids, uh, when they were in school and they're doing you know, Helen Keller, and one of the activities they did in class was uh, you know, putting blinders on and, and trying to you know, find a certain desk or certain something in the room and having to do that without being able to see. You know, last fall, a good friend of mine and I, we took our two sons a couple of miles back into the woods. And this path was kind of hard to follow in places because all of this was in North Carolina all, where they have hills. And so uh, all of the leaves had just fallen, okay? And so the leaves were crunching beneath our feet the whole time, but it was hard to see the path at times, even you know, in daylight. And so our plan was to hike to a little clearing about two miles in the middle of nowhere in the woods following this little path, which again would have been easy to see if it were not for the fallen leaves. And so sometimes we had to really kind of look to see where the path went. But our plan was to, to hike to a little clearing where there was a fire pit there that somebody else had made. We were going to make a fire and do up some s'mores and uh, have a great time. And then we would let the sun set and then we would hike back to our car when it was dark, right? We wanted our sons to have this, you know, you know, middle of the night, pitch black in the woods experience. Seemed like a good idea to us. So <laughs> we, we did all of that. And we had a great time. These are my two sons and uh, some other stray we found along the path. And uh, so we, we did all of that. It was such a great time, such a great evening. Lots of laughing, just uh, s'mores. It was just fantastic. And on our way back to the car, we had gone maybe a half a mile. And my friend and I were talking, and we said, hey, you know what? Let's turn our lamps off. We had these little headlamps. Let's turn our headlamps off. And let's see what it would be like having to walk back to the car without the benefit of any light. And so 
we did that, and it didn't take but 10 or 15 seconds before we realized, like, oh, my goodness, we would really be in trouble out here without the benefit of a light that could shine down on our path to illuminate our steps. And I kind of think that, uh, so anyways, I, I gained a new appreciation for my little $10 headlamp that night. The next day, uh, my buddy and I, we were just talking over some coffee probably, and we were kind of thinking back on the night, just saying, man, that was so cool, so cool when your son said this, and, and you know, w- watching them grow up together. And, um, and we had that moment where we, where we went back to turning our lights off, and it was just like, man, what if, right? What if we didn't have a headlamp, or we forgot to take them, which would be a very Jeff thing to do? Uh, what if... What if uh, I had, or this would also be a very Jeff thing to do, uh, you know, having it turn on, putting it in my backpack, and then having the batteries run down, and so, so that it's shining all that light inside my backpack when we don't need it, right? But what if we had, what if that had happened, and so we were just marveling at the, at the, you know, the importance of just a little bit of light in those situations, like what would we have done? We probably would have stayed by that fire pit all night. And, uh, you know, somebody after the first service said, no, you probably would have made a torch. And they're probably right. We probably would have been walking back to the car in the cold and said, kids, take your clothes off. We need a torch. (laughs) Um, So anyways, but I kind of think that this is what Jesus is getting after here. The world is a place of spiritual darkness, but there is a light that illuminates our path so we can see. And Jesus is saying, I am that light. And maybe there's someone here right now and you're saying, hmm, yeah, dark woods, nighttime, pitch black, can't really find the path. Maybe you're saying that pretty much describes my life right now. I want you to know that you're in good company. A lot of the people who were listening to Jesus We're feeling the same way. But you know what John tells us later on, just a few verses later, what was happening right there when he was saying that I am the light of the world? He says, many who heard him say these things believed. And I want you to know you can receive that light today. You don't have to wait another minute. Right there in your chair, you believe on Jesus. Paul said, For God, who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine into our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus. Jesus claimed to be the light of the world, and many believed. He also claimed to be the good shepherd. John records, I am the good shepherd. The the, the good shepherd sacrifices his life For the sheep, I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep, and they know me just as my father knows me, and I know the father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. Now, John is probably standing in the crowd here and listening to what people are saying. You know, he's got like people in front of him, people behind him, people on either side of him, and he's listening to what people are saying. Jesus is talking about, I am the good shepherd, right? And Listen to how John describes people's reaction to this. This is so cool that he's able to record some of this for us because he's standing right there in the crowd. He says, 
The people, this is only a few verses later, right in this conversation. The people were, were again divided in their opinions about him. Some said, he's demon-possessed and out of his mind. Why listen to a man like that? Others said, this doesn't sound like a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Good question. A good shepherd takes care of his sheep. He feeds them. He protects them. He guides them. He doesn't beat them. He loves his sheep and he gives his life so they can live. And Jesus claimed to be our good shepherd. Lastly, he made this bold claim. I am the resurrection and the life. John records, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Now, this is a truly staggering statement from Jesus. And when he makes it is he's talking to Martha. He had just uh, raised Lazarus from the dead. And he's sitting here with Martha talking. And he, he says to her, you know, basically, not only do I have the power to raise from the dead. And now she is not questioning this. She was an eyewitness to it. She had just seen him do this. So she's not uh, shocked by this. But he says, I am the resurrection. Not only can I do it, I am the resurrection. I am the life, he says. This is such a great story. And I hope you come back because in a couple of weeks, Doug is going to be going deeper into this awesome story. But he claims to be the resurrection and the life. He has mastery over death. And he has the power to give life. He gave the immoral woman who was washing his feet with her tears and, and perfume and her hair and kissing him. He gave the immoral woman life, spiritually speaking, when he said, your sins are forgiven and your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So Jesus claimed to be the bread of life and the light of the world and the good shepherd. And he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And the disciples, they're they're there and they're writing all of these things down. And because they wrote them down, there are first-hand accounts meticulously researched. Eyewitnesses who wrote these things down. And why is it that they wanted to write all of this stuff down? Is it because they just you know, had a New Year's resolution? I need to, I'm, I'm going to be a better journaler this year? No, they wrote it down so that others would believe what they believed. It was an invitation to others to believe what they believed. And even today, their writings still reach down through the centuries, inviting us, believe what we believe, believe what we know to be true, and what they would later willingly even suffer and even die for. So we should all be asking the question, who is this man? But we should also be asking another question that kind of leads us to that larger one. And that is, where did the disciples end up? Where, who, who did uh, the disciples finally end up believing Jesus was? Again, not right there in the moment when they're caught up in all of the excitement of being with him and all the traveling and the miracles and all that. But after that, what did that look like? What did they say about him? Here is just a little sampling. 
John the Baptist said, Jesus is the Lamb of God. John the disciple records, the next day, John, that is John the Baptist, too many Johns, it's like Doug's around here. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one I was talking about when I said, a man is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me, the Lamb of God. You see, in that time, you know, still kind of Old Testament, uh, they're under law, and Jesus was coming, and and nothing would ever be the same again because he was doing something brand new, and he was going to fulfill so much of this stuff. But what they did is they... They would take a, a lamb, and that lamb had to be perfect. No spots, no blemishes, and then they would sacrifice this lamb, and then the blood of that lamb would cover the sins of the people for another year. But John recognizes, John the Baptist recognizes Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world. And so Jesus is the Lamb of God to us. He is God himself, and so And so uh, there would be no more lambs that would ever need to be sacrificed after Jesus because he would be the once and for all sacrifice. John the Baptist said Jesus is the Lamb of God. John the disciple said Jesus is the Word. And we sang about this this morning. Jesus is the Word. He writes, so the Word became human and just volumes could be written about that one phrase. So the word became human and, was, and he made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Now what does John mean that Jesus is the word? It's one of those things that doesn't really, it's kind of confusing when it's translated into English. John could have used a word here that means like, uh, you, you know, God wanted to communicate something to us, and so it, Jesus is that word, right? Now, he could have used a, maybe a word that meant like just a little snippet, just one sentence, not the whole thing, just, just a little sentence, or maybe one short paragraph out of an entire novel, right? He, he Maybe like a little text message that just communicates one little thing. Not everything that I intend to communicate, but just one little thing. But that's not the word he uses. He uses the word logos, The word logos is an all-encompassing word. It It means the total message. It is the whole, complete, entire message from God to the people. So it basically means that Jesus is the total message that God wants to communicate to mankind. The total message. He is the wisdom and the reason and the total message from God. Jesus is the self-expression of God to man. Paul believed this as well. Paul said Jesus was God in the flesh. He writes, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. So Paul believed that Jesus was no less than God in the flesh. Another translation says, in him, that is in Christ, in Jesus, 
all of the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. Beautiful. Jesus made another staggering statement. One time, uh, one of his uh, followers asked him, hey, Jesus, tell us about the Father. What is the Father like? What does he look like? Jesus says to him, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. What a claim. Peter also says Jesus is the chief cornerstone and many other things said about Jesus as well. So John the Baptist, John the disciple, Peter, Paul, they have no doubt that Jesus is who he claims to be, the promised Messiah, the Son of God, the Deliverer who has come to set men free. Now, Doug pointed out last week that most, if not all, we're not really sure about John, but most of the disciples were so committed to spreading the gospel, spreading the good news about this man, Jesus, that they ended up giving their lives for it. Well, we don't know if all of them died for it. Uh, we know this, all of them for sure were persecuted. All of them for sure suffered because of their association with Jesus and for their continued faith in him and because they wouldn't stop preaching about him. They all knew that following Christ would cost them something, even their lives, and yet they still followed him. You know, one time in the book of Acts, at the end of Acts chapter 5, I love this. There are a bunch of these guys, and they're, they're preaching just right out in the open, and then they, they get uh, taken into prison, and they get beaten multiple times. They're, they're beaten, and then when they are let go, they're told, now no more preaching about Jesus, or it might be worse next time. Next verse, they went right on preaching and teaching about Jesus right out in the open and going door to door, and they wouldn't stop talking about Jesus. And then this awesome statement about them. They rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer for this man, Jesus, and for his sake. Now let me ask you, does that sound like some guys who are still trying to figure it out? Does that sound like, this is after Jesus had gone, that sound like guys who are having trouble answering the question, maybe on the fence with this whole question of who is this man? The disciples believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be, and they endured suffering and persecution and even death in defense of those claims. So let me ask you, where are you with this today? Where do you personally stand with this question, who is this man? You know, one day the disciples, are, they're walking from one town to another. They did a lot of this, right? They went, they're walking from one town to another, and, you know, I don't know if they were all quiet, and Jesus is just trying to get a conversation started or what, but he says, hey, guys, who do people say that I am? And so they're like, oh, man, people are saying a lot of things. Some say that you're John the Baptist. Others say that you're Elijah. And there are others who say that you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then Jesus turns it right to them, makes it personal. And he asks this question, who do you say that I am? Who do you say? That I am. And Peter answers. And he says, Thou art the Christ, 
He says, I believe that you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answers him, blessed are you because my father revealed this to you. So I'm asking, how about you? Imagine right now, Jesus is putting this question directly to you, right there in your seat, directly to you, just like he did to these men he was traveling with. Who do you say that I am? For my part, I've answered this question for my own life and in my own heart. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and I believe the biblical account of him. I believe that when he hung on the cross, he was taking my sin on him when it was, should have been me on that cross, and I'm receiving his righteousness, the righteousness that I lack and I'm incapable of producing apart from him. I believe that, and I believe that I am more sure of this today than I've ever been. And in 10 years, I hope uh, as I walk more with him and, and my walk with him deepens and, and grows and I experience him even more, I hope to be saying that I am more sure even then. But this is something that I've had to answer myself and it didn't come all at once, right? It came in a process over time, just like the disciples. Remember Doug told us last week, it's not like Jesus said, hey, fishermen, drop your nets and follow me. And they're like, we recognize you as the son of God, the Messiah, and we will gladly lay our lives down for you. No, that happened over the course of a few years. But I can only speak for myself. I can't speak for you. I can't speak for the disciples. The disciples had to answer this question on their own as well. And when they answered it, they were all in. That's what they were. Not one of them went a different way. When they answered this question, they were all in. And so I want to ask you this. What, was it what will it look like for us to be all in? What would that look like? Last night, before I went to sleep, I was laying in my bed and I was thinking about this question. You know, not all pastors are all in. Please don't think that that's true of, of pastors across the board. I would hope that they would be. But I was asking myself, laying on my bed last night, Jesus, am I all in? I mean, am I? Wrestling with that. What would it look like for me to be all in? What I'd like you to take with you today is simply this. Take a good, long look at the answer to this question in your own heart, who do you say that I am? And what would it look like for us to be all in? Who do you, not Crosswinds Church, not that pastor or youth pastor that you used to have when you were younger, not the group that you identify with or the group that you run around with, not who do they say Jesus is, See the Savior looking at you right now and asking this question to you directly. Who do you say that I am? In the final analysis, it is only this question that will matter. Let's pray. Father, 
Thank you for sending Jesus to take our sin on him that we might have life. I believe that you are the light of the world and the good shepherd and the resurrection and the life and the bread of life. God, I believe that there are people here this morning when faced with this question, who do you say that I am? I believe there are people, many people, who would say, I believe, I agree with Jeff. I believe that, and I agree with the disciples. I believe that you are the son of God, and I'm all in, or I want to be all in. If that's true of you, then I want you to hear the words from Jesus to Peter. Blessed are you. Blessed are you, and consider what would it look like to be all in. And maybe there are some here right now who you haven't answered this question yet. You don't know who you say that he is. Maybe you're not there yet with all of these things that Jesus claimed. And I want to say that's okay. It's a process. It's a process. But I would encourage you today, believe on him and receive the light that leads to life. Let God shine that light in your heart. God, thank you for Jesus. What a wonderful name it is. Help us to be all in, and we would follow you all of our days. We ask all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.